Great to see you. A couple of things before we're going to dive into our text this morning. Uh, the first is that you may have noticed that you were not warmly welcomed by handshake as you entered. It's not because uh, you're not welcome. Uh, it's because we're trying to uh, limit, you know, contact in light of what's going on with the coronavirus, with COVID-19. So that's going to be kind of our protocol going on. Just give a high, give an elbow, whatever you want to do. Um, also, you should know we're looking at uh, sort of rethinking how we do some of our communion practices. So we're still doing communion that we usually do today, but we're looking at maybe changing that up in the future. So keep, uh, keep alert for changes in that regard. Uh, but really, I want to begin with uh, just a word of prayer for everything that is going on with the virus. I know that um, this has not uh, really hit home here that much, uh, but certainly there are people we know and certainly age regions of the world that are really being hit hard. And so I want to begin just with a word of prayer uh, for comfort and healing. So I'd ask that you join with me, please, as we begin. Uh, Lord, we are mindful of uh, the many places in the world where uh, it is not business as usual today. Uh, where there is uh, a lot of sickness, a lot of fear. Uh, Lord, you've called us as a church not to have a spirit of fear, Lord. And, and Lord, we are not afraid. We know that you are our God. We know that you are our protector. Uh, we also know, Lord, that we are living in a world uh, that has fallen and that is not perfect and that there are all manner of bacteria and viruses that uh, can plague us. And so, Lord, I pray for you to bring healing. I pray for the for all the medical teams that are involved. I pray for the, the governments involved. I pray for, for energy and wisdom and ingenuity to know how to best combat uh, this, this situation. But Lord, I do pray. I pray that each individual would have uh, a greater hope uh, than, they, than their circumstantial peace, than even their own physical health. I pray, Lord, that, that those who know you would cling to you. And Lord, those who don't, I pray this would be a time where they find greater peace in you. So, so please, Lord, bring protection, bring comfort and healing. And uh, Lord, help us to walk faithfully in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so you may have noticed that we've done some redecorating. Uh, we have some crinkly paper on the wall. And uh, the reason we're doing this is because uh, we think Easter is not a small deal. We want to make a big deal of the remembrance of Easter, of the celebrating of Easter. And so uh, we are doing this through a series called Conflicting Kingdoms, Jesus's Final Week in Jerusalem. And our stage design is uh, hopefully going to help us to celebrate. You'll notice we have one kind of image exposed there. That's the image from uh, Palm Sunday, where we're going to be talking about today. Each week, we're going to expose a different image uh, because every week we are going to go to an, another event in Easter week. That's the idea behind this, this whole series is that every Sunday we're going to look at the next consecutive day and try to put ourselves in the sort of the, the place there as Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, as the disciples are there, all the conflict that was brewing. We want to kind of track that all the way to Easter Sunday. Uh, hopefully you received one of these little guides. Uh, this is uh, to help us to walk through each week well and get the most out of it that we can. Uh, if you flip through it, you'll see that there uh, is uh, no, there's room for sermon notes. If you're a note taker, uh, we give you some space there. There are also some of the study questions. Uh, this is normally what we go through in our community groups. So they'll begin with these questions, add a few others. Uh, if you're not part of a community group, you can do this on your own. There's also a devotional. Uh, we asked some individuals in the church to write kind of a brief devotional, kind of on the same themes. So during the week, you can read that, reflect on it. And uh, we're hoping that this will uh, really help us to, again, 
put ourselves uh, kind of on the streets in a sense uh, for that Easter week and also get the most out of it in terms of what it means for us. So um, it, these are a couple bucks that uh, cost to produce. Uh, if you're a regular giver and want to add a few, a little few dollars, that's great. If you want to donate at the Connect Us, that's great. But mostly we just want everyone to have one of these to help guide our time together. Um, now, a couple challenges just before we get into our text this morning. Challenges about this whole sermon series that we've set up. Uh, for one thing, it's a little challenging to know exactly what events of Easter week happen on what specific days. Some days are really easy. For example, Palm Sunday pretty much happened on Sunday. We know that to be sure. Uh, Resurrection Sunday also happened on Sunday. But there are a lot of other events that, depending on the timeline you look at, depending on how you say scripture, they might change. Uh, and that's okay. If you, as you walk around the lobby, you'll see we did banners with kind of the different events every day. Again, that's just to kind of help us to think, oh yeah, Monday was the day Jesus cleansed the temple. What happened Tuesday? What happened Wednesday? There may be some things that shift. There are even uh, some that argue that the crucifixion should be on a Thursday uh, because of the, the full three days and three nights. That's okay. Uh, what I'm hoping is that we will do is not, you know, grab too tightly onto the structure itself, uh, but rather just to enter into the, the Easter week itself and to see that these are historical events that happened and uh, we want to know the significance of them. So that's the first challenge is kind of the, the dates and structure itself. The second challenge, uh, the visuals that we've chosen, uh, you'll notice are kind of Renaissance style paintings. Uh, we've chosen them because in our culture, they evoke a sense of uh, majesty, grandeur, kind of a, a weightiness to the events that are being talked about. There's some cultural connections to these particular images. Uh, one of the main challenges, though, is that they're not historically accurate. Uh, I hope you know this, but you know Jesus wasn't white, right? Do we know this? He was, he was dark-skinned. He was a Palestinian Jew, probably at the time. That's more accurate representation. So, so don't get too hung up on that. Again, uh, we're not looking to these images or this structure to help us know Jesus in Easter. We're looking to the Word of God. Uh, these are just things that are hopefully helpful in our celebration and remembrance of Easter. So with that in mind, uh, we are going to turn our attention to the Word of God. Uh, today we are in John chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 12. Uh, I want to pray again for us uh, just as we uh, get into our text. Uh, so... So join with me. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for Easter week. Thankful, God, for the story that is not just uh, a fable told, but is history, things that happened uh, in history, things that have great impact for all of humanity. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we begin to study and, uh, and refresh our minds about the events of this week, uh, Lord, that we would draw closer to you. I pray especially today as we are looking into the events of the triumphal entry, uh, Lord Jesus, that we would know you more by, by looking deeply into what you did and why you did it. And I pray, God, that each one would have a soft heart uh, to the things you are telling us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, beginning of the week, beginning of Easter week, uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time. This is traditionally called Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry is probably what's in the heading, uh, subheading of your Bible. Uh, the reason it's called Palm Sunday is because there are crowds of people we're going to see who come out to welcome Jesus and they're waving palm branches. Uh, the reason that there are crowds of people is because this is Passover uh, and Passover was one of the three festivals that uh, Jews were expected to be in Jerusalem. So Josephus, who's a historian of the time, uh, reports that... On average, I mean, there's about a million and a half, more than two million people that would flood into Jerusalem, all to celebrate Passover. Uh, Jesus did this every year of his life. 
He was part of a faithful Jewish family, Mary and Joseph, uh, even with his disciples. This is his third year of public ministry, so twice already with his disciples, he would have entered Jerusalem, celebrated the Passover, and left. This year, though, uh, there seems to be an understanding that things are different, that this is not going to be your typical Passover. Uh, Part of the reason that we know this, certainly the disciples know this, is because Jesus has been telling them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem so that I can die and that I can be raised again. And for most of the disciples, they're probably hoping he's speaking in metaphors. They don't quite understand what, what, how could that be, but th- they know that something's different. Uh, they know that something's different also because of what just happened. In Bethany, which is nearby, uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which automatically upped his you know, awareness. The people, that story was told far and wide. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders at the time also took note and they were very, very concerned. In fact, right after that happened, when he raised Lazarus, uh, they had sort of an emergency council meeting to, to wonder what are we going to do with this Jesus. Uh, look here in John 11. So this is just the chapter before what we're going to read. John eleven forty seven says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So they're very concerned, and they're concerned in particular about the Romans, which, which is a valid concern. The Romans were very tired of dealing with uh, Jewish revolt, and so they always brought in extra soldiers into Jerusalem at the time, in, just in case something went bad at Passover. They would have, you know, some troops nearby. So hopefully, even before we've read our text, we're getting a sense that there is definitely conflict brewing, that, that there's definitely going to be conflict here on the streets of Jerusalem, and that, in fact, Jesus is not just at the center of this conflict. We're going to see that very often he's the one instigating the conflict. And he does so not just to, not just to increase the tension, but because in doing so, he will bring about the accomplishment of God's plans and purposes for the peace of all humankind. And this is the dynamic we're going to see, conflict which leads to greater and greater peace. In fact, that's one of the most compelling things about the Easter story. There, in the story that we're going to see, day in, day out, there is increasing tension and conflict and violence on the streets of Jerusalem, but it all leads to peace and reconciliation and comfort at the foot of the cross. So you have this dynamic, and we're going to see uh, now as I read our text, the beginning of it, where really the conflict uh, begins. So I'm going to read us, uh, beginning in verse 12 of John 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And that's our text. That's the the triumphal entry. 
Uh, to get through the text, to get the most out of it, uh, we're basically going to ask one main question, one question, and then see the answers to it that we find in the text. And the question is this, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem as he did? Why this way? He could have entered a lot of different ways. It could have been very quiet. He could have entered the back door. There are back doors to Jerusalem, smaller gates. Why all of the public frenzy? Why this way? Uh, just to be clear, we understand how big a deal this was. Let's, l- let's look in the text again. This was a very big entrance. Uh, here's what it says, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we see a large crowd is there. Uh, again, some from the city, some that were with him from Lazarus. Uh, the palm branches, uh, if, if you're wondering, they were actually a symbol of national pride for Israel. There had been some battles that were won in the past that brought up palm branches. It was now, in a sense, almost like a banner or, or a, f- a flag of Israel. That, that's what it meant when they were waving them. Uh, Hosanna is from Psalm 118, and it basically means, uh, God save us or bring us success. Uh, it's a phrase that has religious and kind of political nationalist connotations to it. Uh, a phrase today that we would hear that would be kind of similar would be, uh, God save the king or God save the queen. If you believe in God, you're, you're hopefully actually wanting God to work in the queen or king's life. But it's also something you just say because you're British, right? It's, it's, a, it's a phrase of nationalist pride. That's, that's kind of what's going on here when they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they couple it with the king of Israel. Uh, if we were to think of something that would be similar in today's time, Uh, probably the best thing would be that this is like a political campaign rally. That's what it would have felt like if you were there. Uh, If you think about what's going on down in South with the Democratic Party right now, all the candidating, that's that's what this would have looked like. You would have gone there, right, for a a political campaign. There's flags, right, American flags, Canadian flags, whatever it may be. There's signs, people shouting and cheering. The political candidate is front and center, shaking hands, trying to gain momentum, trying to get popular support. That's what it would have felt like right there in the moment. And the interesting thing is that on one level, Jesus seems to be approving of all this enthusiasm. Uh, Luke in his gospel records an interchange between one of the the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, The Pharisee kind of questions Jesus. He says, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He's saying, Jesus, you should tell all of your people to quit making such such hoopla about you. It's inappropriate. They're calling you king. You need to tell everyone to settle down. And Jesus' response is, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Meaning they shouldn't settle down. In fact, they should make more noise. This is entirely appropriate if you really know who I was. So Jesus does seem to be uh, approving of the enthusiasm of the people. I mean, if, again, if he'd wanted to, he could have entered very quietly. He didn't have to make such a big public spectacle. And so maybe... Maybe this is the answer to our question, right? Why did Jesus enter this way? Maybe it was to gain public support. However, if you look more closely, we're going to see that 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 can't be the the answer. That isn't the correct answer. Uh, We know this because of some of the clues that are in the text itself. Uh, For one thing, when Jesus, after this scene, this is actually just the next kind of scene that comes in the Gospels, after all of this excitement, people are still with him, Uh, There's a scene where Jesus cries. He weeps over Jerusalem. Look at Luke 19. It says, When he drew near and saw the city, 
So he's been on the road. All the people are coming. They're cheering. When he gets near to the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Like, political candidates don't usually cry, right, on TV, like after a campaign, unless they do badly, right? If it goes badly, then yes, they might weep. But here, things are not going badly. There's a lot of support. If Jesus really wanted uh, more momentum for him, more support for him, public support, then he had it. He should have been happy. But he's not happy. He's not happy because this is not the kind of support that he wanted, right? What he's, what he's saying to them is, is, look, if you were really interested in peace, if you knew the kind of peace that you really needed and that God could bring you, you wouldn't be trying to make me king right now. You would be grieved over your sin. You'd be looking to me, looking to God for forgiveness. He's, he's making clear, you don't really understand what this is all about. If you think this is about me gaining momentum, leading to a revolution, you, you've totally missed it. So that's the first clue that this is, this is not really, the public adoration is not really what Jesus is interested in in this moment. The second thing, though, is his choice of transportation. If you ever see politicians pull up, they have a nice ride, right? They're in a suburban, tinted windows. They're in something, something looks nice, right? For Jesus, if he had picked a nice ride, it would have been a horse, right? Something strong and majestic, something to ride in and, and lead the people. But instead, verse 14, he finds a young donkey. Not even an adult donkey, a young donkey. This would have definitely tempered people's enthusiasm. This would have been like a political candidate uh, showing up to a rally on a moped, right? People would have been like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Why? It just seems out of place. Or like an army general leading his troops into battle on a bike, right? You'd be like, hey, I got to find the right gear. We're really going to take the city. It would not. So they're still cheering. They're still excited. But there's, a, there's an element of I'm not quite sure what this is about. And that's because this is, this is not ultimately a political campaign. He's not really trying to gain more attention for himself and for his cause. In fact, the donkey uh, draws us closer to an understanding of what is really going on here. So the question, the question again, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem as he did? There are in fact three answers. The first is this, he did it to fulfill scripture. So you see at the end of that verse 14, uh, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it just as it is written. Uh, that phrase, whenever you see it in the Bible, it's a clue that, oh, this is about Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled. And in fact, John fills in the prophecy that was being uh, enacted here. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Uh, so if you have a Bible in front of you, there's probably a little tiny letter. That's a cross-reference. And it will take you to a part of the Old Testament. In this case, Zechariah 9.9. Uh, and so the full verse reads as follows. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a, a messianic prophecy. This is God writing years ago that one day there will come a king, the anointed king, the Messiah, who will come to save and lead my people. And when he comes, he is going to come on a donkey. Very clearly, this is Jesus fulfilling that scripture. It's worth noting how often Jesus does this. Like just as a bit of an aside, have you noticed that this is, in one sense, kind of all Jesus does. He's always fulfilling scripture. 
Uh, if you look up that uh, phrase, uh, which I did, uh, it is written, it comes up 30 times in the Gospels connected to Jesus, and then the word fulfilled uh, comes up 35 times, all talking about how Jesus is fulfilling that which was written about him uh, years ago. In fact, right from uh, his birth, look at uh, how his birth is spoken about. Matthew 1.22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. They were saying Jesus is born this way in keeping with what God had said. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, very first day, he's in a synagogue. There's this new speaker, new, they don't know who he is. Uh, Jesus unrolls uh, Isaiah. He reads to the people a prophecy of the Messiah. And then this happens, Luke 4.20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone goes, bananas. Because he's basically saying, I'm the anointment. I'm, I'm the fulfillment. Which no one can believe. It's like a guest preacher coming in saying, I'm God. It, it does cause some, some questions. But you'll notice that what he's doing is what he's always done. He, he is the fulfillment of scripture. He's doing it in his ministry. And here now, in this final week of ministry, he is still consciously doing things to show that he is fulfilling prophecy, that he's accomplishing the plan of God. In fact, you could say that the Easter story uh, really is all about the fulfillment of God's plan for humanity that he had written long ago and is finally coming to fruition. It's good to note this because it should deepen our understanding and appreciation of all of these events. That these aren't just things that happened to have happened in history and then later came to mean something. These were things that were foretold. And everything is, is packed with meaning. The other reason it's good to note this is that there is a point of practical application for us, those who want to follow Jesus with our lives. And it's this. If Jesus is always fulfilling scripture, then what that means is that Jesus is always submitting himself to scripture. Which is interesting if you think about it. Because you know Jesus is the God of the universe. Jesus is not bound by anything or anyone. Jesus is someone who would, who would never say, I'm, I'm too tired to do something. I don't have enough money to do something. I, I'm not allowed to do something. There's literally nothing that Jesus could not do. He, he was... He was free to do whatever he wanted to do. And yet when he came to earth to live as a human being, he spent his time submitting himself to things that were written down on scrolls hundreds and thousands of years earlier. You see where I'm going with this. If, if Jesus, who is God, sees the value of submitting himself to scripture, why is it that we struggle so much in doing it? Why is it that we readily uh, ignore certain areas of scripture or pick and choose those things that we want to follow? Why is it that we wrestle so much even though it's so, there's certain areas that are so clear and we see in our lives where things need to change and yet we spend a lot of time wrestling with whether this will actually be good? Put another way, what good do you think would come into our lives if we put as much energy and effort into submitting to scripture as Jesus does? I think we would say that the pattern he sets is one that will bring blessing into our lives. So that's a, a practical aside for us in light of the pattern of Jesus' life. But let's get back to the question. Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem as he did? One, to fulfill scripture. We saw that. 
Secondly, now we see it's to provoke conflict, to provoke conflict. And we see this in the different people that are involved in the scene. We're going to look at each one. So firstly, the disciples, Uh, look at verse 16. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. So glorified is when he was uh, raised from the dead and then went on, ascended up to heaven. So even though Jesus had told his disciples, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. There's big things going on. When they enter Jerusalem, they are still very confused. All of the attention, for some of them, they would have seen this as a great thing. Right? They were probably thinking, finally, we can use this momentum. We can advance our cause. This is what we've been wanting. We want the people to be on our side. Other disciples probably would have said, Jesus, this is, this is too much exposure. Right? The Romans are going to take notice. The Jewish leaders are going to take notice. We don't need this kind of heat. They were, they were provoked by what Jesus was doing, and they were confused. That's the disciples. The crowds were, were equally unsure about what was going on. You see them described, verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Uh, It's a little less clear in the English, but there are really two crowds here. One that was with Jesus in Bethany and came with him after the raising of Lazarus. The other crowd was the people in Jerusalem that had heard about it. They all came out to meet him. That's why there's so many people, so much uproar, and and they were definitely provoked. (coughs) Uh, many of them seem to be thinking, finally, the revolution, right? Viva la revolution, right? They were excited. If they had pitchforks, which they, I know they use pitchforks, you know what I'm saying? They would have been very excited. They would have thought at any moment, it's a call to arms and that they would be taking the city and yet Jesus was riding a donkey, which would have confused them slightly. And, and also Jesus didn't, wasn't actually calling them to arms. They would have been provoked and unsure about what exactly this means. The main audience though, that Jesus had for this whole event, the ones he really wanted to provoke were the Jewish religious leaders. And here's their response, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world had gone after him. Now that doesn't seem like a very big response, seems kind of chill, but it helps for us to know the the background, which actually we we already saw. You remember their response to Lazarus being raised from the dead? They had an emergency council meeting. This is John 11. They said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him keep going like this, we're going to lose everything. We have to make plans to kill him. So now it's a day later. And those same Pharisees are watching all of this. And they say to each other, you see? You see what happens? If we do nothing, this is going to get worse and worse. We're gaining nothing by doing nothing. We have to do something. They say uh, the world has gone after him. By that they mean the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone in the city is talking about it. They're saying to each other, look, now is the time we have to act. If we don't do something, if we don't put our plan into action to put him to death, we're going to completely lose control. And so you see the connection here between the beginning of the week and this entry into Jerusalem and the end of the week with the crucifixion. There's a a direct connection because it's at this moment that Jesus is purposely prompting, provoking, uh, poking the Jewish religious leaders to respond as they do, which will then put the wheels in motion, which will lead to his his arrest, uh, his, his beating, and ultimately to his crucifixion. See, 
If you look deep into the scene, you discover something that sometimes is a bit unsettling when it comes to Jesus and, and the Easter story. See, many people like to tell the story of Easter and Jesus as, look, he was a helpless victim, right? He, he came into the world. He was talking about peace and love. He was talking about comfort and, and knowing God. And they, they betrayed him, right? The authorities, they arrested him. They beat him. They killed him. Poor Jesus. There's nothing he could do. We should feel sorry for him. And yet, it doesn't seem like we should feel sorry for him here. What we see here is that Jesus was never a, just a helpless victim, he was always in control. In fact, what we see here is that he was the instigator of the conflict. He provoked the religious leaders knowing the kind of response that they would bring, knowing that it would lead to his crucifixion, which is exactly what he wanted. It's what he knew we needed. See, we usually have the idea that conflict and that uh, provocation, trouble, is a bad thing. And we find lots of verses that that say that, right? That we should be peacemakers. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. In fact, in our home, um, that's one of the most common requests. Could we please just make peace? Could we please not stir up more conflict in our home, please? It's good to have peace in the home. It's good to have peace in the church. It's good to have peace in our community. However, however, there are times when the only way to real and lasting peace is through trouble. Sometimes trouble has to come before the peace. We see this um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, in our secular world, one example that came to mind is investigative reporters. They are people who stir up a lot of, a lot of trouble. Right? They provoke a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. They ask a lot of questions that people don't want to answer. Uh, a couple of uh, reporting teams that came to mind, uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhey, uh, they are the reporters of the New York Times that broke the Harvey Weinstein case. Uh, imagine all of the provocation that was required of them to get that story. All of the people they had to interview or request for interviews, all of the uncomfortable situations, a lot of trouble, a lot of turmoil, all for a very good purpose of exposing sexual misconduct and bringing that, that to light for, for him, that individual, and, and really for society is what ended up happening. There's another team, the Boston Globe uh, investigative reporting team. They're the ones who expose the sexual misconduct by priests in the Boston area. They also would have had to stir up a lot of conflict, a lot of trouble, put a lot of people in uncomfortable situations, all for the purpose of spurring on the legal system to take these issues seriously, to be able to prosecute, to be able to bring justice, to be able to bring peace. See, this is the kind of thing that we see Jesus doing here. He needed a grand entrance to provoke the Pharisees into action, to get the wheels turning that would lead to the cross. In fact, that's kind of the sequence that we see here in the Easter story. Provocation, conflict, the cross, and then finally peace. But this is not just true of the Easter story. This is, in fact, how God has worked in human lives for all of history. We really see it in in the ministry of Jesus as well. See, sometimes people think, if God really loves you, then you will enjoy a life of peace. That's the mark of God's blessing, right? If you're healthy, if you're wealthy, if all things are going well, then God must be for you. He must be at work. But in fact, what we see in the ministry of Jesus is that very often he's at work, but there's a lot of conflict involved. I mean, he, he does, look, he heals people, he feeds people, but he also puts people in some really uncomfortable situations. He also asks a lot of difficult questions. 
Like, where's your husband to the woman at the well? Right? He's highlighting an area of sin in her life. He does that time and again. He exposes the corruption of the Pharisees. Jesus is is most often doing his best work when he's making people uncomfortable. When when there's turmoil and conflict, things that we would rather have covered up, he, he pulls back the cover. Not because he wants to be mean or, or vindictive, but because he loves these people. He loves us. See, peace in life is a good thing, but only if it's a fruit of the cross. That's where you'll find real peace. I remember a story from uh, the life of Billy Graham, the ministry of Billy Graham, you know, had big ministry evangelistic meetings. And he told us one story of this man who started coming to his meetings, uh, his wife, was a believer and had been coming and she really wanted her husband to come. Uh, her husband is a, a well-known guy in the California area. He's very wealthy, uh, but he was a very shady character, very corrupt in a lot of his business dealings. So he started coming to these meetings and he seemed to be kind of interested. Uh, he, was, he met with Billy. Uh, people were praying for him. Uh, he came again and again and it seemed like God was really doing something in his, in his life and in his, his heart. Well, one evening late, uh, he came to Billy's house and he was just totally distraught. Totally, there's no peace. He was, you could just almost see the inner turmoil according to Billy. And he said to him, please, you have to pray for me. You have to pray for me. I just need some peace. I need to go to bed. I just, I don't know what to do. I'm beside myself. And Billy's response uh, kind of shocked me. He said to the man, I'm not going to pray for you. He said, I'm not going to pray for you because if I pray for you, you're going to go home and you're going to think everything's okay. You're going to go to bed. You're going to sleep. He said, everything's not okay in your life. He said, there's sin in your life that you need to repent of. The only way that you're going to find real peace is if you turn from your sin and you come to the cross of Jesus. You see that Jesus died for those sins and that you can have peace because he has eliminated any wrath or condemnation or or death itself that is coming to you. There is real peace, but it only comes through faith in Christ. He didn't want the man to go away just with a band-aid to his situation. See, very often, the unsettledness in our soul, the thing that we just want to stop and we're praying, Lord, I just want to feel at ease, is in fact God at work. I was talking with Don a bit about this. We were thinking about the, the past number of years in our marriage and in ministry, and we look back on some times that were full of turmoil, full of conflict, conflict in marriage, conflict in ministry, and we think to ourselves, man, we are so glad that we're not in those times. Those times were very, very difficult. When we were there, we were praying most of the time, God, can you please make it stop? Please, Lord, we want, we want peace in our family. We want peace in our situation. And yet looking back, we see that we have so much greater intimacy with each other, intimacy with God because of those difficult times. Because they were times when God was exposing certain things in our lives. Sin in our lives that we needed to repent of things that we were hoping and trusting in that that weren't Jesus and it was being taken from us so that we would recognize we need to have a greater hope. See, this is the pattern of God's work in our lives. This is what we see with Jesus, what we see even today, that if God loves us, he will at times bring great conflict, bring turmoil, bring uncertainty, a lot of times because he's trying to show us something that we'd rather have covered up. So why did Jesus enter this way? To fulfill scripture, to provoke conflict, and thirdly, to bring lasting peace. That's the pattern that we see. 
we see even in our text this, this peace that is coming because this is the beginning. Uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, a lot of conflict is brewing. We're going to see that Jesus is provoking a lot of people in a lot of ways. The peace is to come, right? The crucifixion and resurrection, that is where the ultimate peace comes because all of the, all the things that afflict us in our sin are dealt with on the cross. But, but there's a, a glimmer. There's a foreshadowing of the peace even in our text today. And it comes through the, uh, the reference to Zechariah. Remember Zechariah 9.9, that's what John quoted when he was writing his gospel. But the next couple verses speak about the kingdom of God. Speak about the Messiah that is to come and the peace that he will bring. And here, here are the two verses, verses 10 and 11. God says in prophesying about his people, about the hope he will bring, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So what's being described here is the, the kingdom of heaven and the anointed Messiah, Jesus, who's gonna come and bring about the peace that God planned and promised. You'll notice that this is not about military power. Look in the first couple of verses there. It says, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. This isn't about a stronger military might on the earth. It's about the end to war, the end to military conflict. It's also not just about peace for Israel. You see there it says, and he shall speak peace to the nations, to all the nations. Also, the borders of this kingdom aren't the walls of Jerusalem or the edge of the Roman Empire. You see there it says, this is to the ends of the earth. This is a kingdom that will come and reign for all people the world over. And it's not just about freedom from oppression on earth. That's what the people wanted, right? They were shouting, Hosanna, king of Israel. They're saying, we want these Romans to be done with. We're so tired of being oppressed by the Romans. Their hope was that there would be a Messiah that would come, a new king, and that they would be able to go in. I mean, if Jesus can raise someone from the dead, he must have the power of God. Man, this is like old school Gideon. Let's go in. Let's take the city. That's what they're hoping for, that kind of liberation. But it says there that I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That's a reference to the pit of death, to Hades or hell. What's being spoken of is a spiritual liberation. And you notice that it comes about by, by blood, but not blood of a conquered army. Again, that's what the people were thinking, right? We could, we could really take out these Romans. We have the power of God with us. We've read the Old Testament. We know how he works. We can wipe him out. But in fact, we see here that this is, this is not the blood of a conquered army, but the blood of the king himself. See, God's covenant with his people from thousands of years before was that he would one day deal with sin for good and that he would be the one to accomplish it. So now here, what, what John is making clear to us as we read the gospel, that the people then would have hopefully known by looking at Jesus mounted on a, a donkey that the whole prophecy of Zechariah would have come to mind. And Jesus is saying, look, the time is now here for there to be true and lasting peace. And it's going to come about according to the plans and purposes of God, not according to your plans. Because your plans are not going to bring lasting peace. They will at best be a circumstantial peace with another empire that starts and will fall. There's greater peace to be had. 
a peace that begins in each human heart as we come to faith, as we repent of sin, as we are made new from the inside out. The picture of this new kingdom is Jesus riding humbly on a donkey, not in the way that people would expect, but in a way that that communicates the humility of the kingdom. But you notice also he does it provoking people's hearts, confronting people in their sin. The goal is that they would come to terms with God's king, his true and anointed king, his Messiah and the Prince of Peace. And so in light of this text, what we should see is two things. Number one, we should worship Jesus for all that he's done for us that this occurred, that this happened, this side of the cross, we know the peace that God brought. We know that he was raised from the dead. We know that death has been conquered, that there's no reason for us to fear anymore. But we should also know that God continues to work in our lives, even for those of us that have accepted Christ, that have said, yes, you are my hope, my savior. He continues to bring conflict into our lives, to bring turmoil and difficulty so that we would worship him and follow him all the more so that we wouldn't be deceived by the supposed hopes of this world, so that we wouldn't be able to ignore the sin in our life and just think that everything is great. So the question we should be asking is, if there is turmoil in my life, is this the kind of thing that God is doing? See, when we become aware that this is one of the ways that God works in our lives, it changes the way that we engage with difficulty. Instead of just praying, Lord, I pray that it would stop, I pray that whatever difficult, challenging thing is happening would be rectified and that I would just go back to my life a week, a month, whenever it was ago when everything was okay. That's how we tend to pray. But if we see that perhaps God is at work, we might pray differently. We might pray, Lord, what am I missing? Is there, is there sin that I, that I have a blind spot to that I'm not seeing? Is there an area of my life where I'm trusting in something that I should not be trusting in? we begin to be self-reflective in light of this kind of activity of Jesus, that he provokes us because he loves us. He brings turmoil. The spirit of God is brought into our lives, left with us to convict us of sin and lead us into all truth. Very often, the spirit's work is, is a conflicting work, one where we just don't feel at peace with ourselves. And the answer is not just to go and find circumstantial peace. The answer is to come to the cross and to say, Jesus, I know you've brought peace into my life, but I... There's something I need to repent of. There's something I need to turn away from. So, so why did Jesus enter Jerusalem as he did? To fill scripture, to provoke conflict, and to bring lasting peace. My hope is that as we walk through this final week with Jesus, that peace will increase all the more. We'll appreciate it more. We'll enjoy it more by his grace. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I I thank you for the rhythm of our year, uh, the calendar, the church calendar, which brings us back to celebrate Easter year after year. It's a story, Lord, that many of us know. We've celebrated many times before. But God, I pray that this again would be a year when we draw nearer to you through it. Help us, Jesus, to, to better understand who you are and how you work. And I pray, Lord, if there are areas of blindness in our lives, areas of sin, areas of, of idolatry, uh, that you would, you would help us to see it and that we would seek genuine peace with you, not by ignoring the conflict, ignoring the inner turmoil, but by resolving it at the cross through confession of sin, through repentance, 
And Lord, that by doing so, we would receive a genuine lasting peace, that we would truly be able to worship you, rejoice in who you are. And I pray, Lord, for those that are going through a difficult time, maybe external difficulties, whatever the conflict may be, would you please bring peace and comfort? Lord, especially for those that don't know you as Savior and Lord, would you, would you provoke good questions? Provoke questions they don't have answers to. The only, the only answers that we really have are here in Scripture. And I pray that that would bring lasting comfort. Thank you for the Easter season. I pray your blessing on us as we enter into it. In Jesus' name, amen.